Imagine asking a basketball referee to explain the how of playing basketball. No doubt you would hear all the rules, the number of seconds you are allowed to cross half court, the time in the paint, charging and blocking fouls, but not really one word on how to play the game. Ask a lawyer about the Constitution. You'll probably hear about all the important Supreme Court cases, Marbury versus Madison, Dred Scott versus Sanford, Plessy versus Ferguson, Gibbons versus Ogden, and more. But they probably can't tell you how the preamble of the Bill of Rights reads, what the ratifiers expected the Supremacy Clause to mean, or maybe even how the federal government gets its authority. My guest today is going to help sort out some core constitutional issues. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 73. Hello and welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Navigate on your browser to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, to find all the show episode links. You can also follow the Culinary Libertarian blog and podcast on the various social media links, as well as follow the show on the newest host, the Cerberus Radio Network, which also places the show on SoundCloud. The links for all of those things, including the Cerberus Radio Network, are on the podcast page. Click the Kiko's Cakes banner to sign up with Kiko's Cakes to give your wife or husband a professional-style cake or tort for Valentine's Day. You can make it following Kiko's video instructions. If you listen to this show, you know I am a stickler for procedures which both make sense and work, and Kiko's do both. You can make the dessert of your dreams with Kiko's help. Click the banner or navigate to my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash Kiko's Cakes. While you are in the interwebs, support the show with a like and a review on your favorite podcatcher. Those kinds of engagements help the math mice move the show up so more people can listen. The deadline to order a Valentine coffee mug has passed, but there is still time to get a Punchkide coffee mug from my Fat Tuesday page, culinarylibertarian.com slash Fat Tuesday. In addition to the mug links at the bottom of the page, you can cook up some fine Northern style food for your old Mardi Gras party. Grab your beads and a hurricane and party on. My guest today is Mike Meharry, who returns to discuss his new book, Constitution Owner's Manual. Mike writes for the 10th Amendment Center, as well as hosts several podcasts and writes about liberty and constitutional issues for a couple of other outlets. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for joining me again on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, well, the funny thing about the time change. Exactly. We're talking across two time zones. Isn't technology amazing? I mean, it this is would have amazing. been impossible 20 years ago. Not impossible, but would have taken a big studio and satellites. Here we are on the internet. Here we are on the internet. You know, I, I was, and I don't know who posted it. Someone was, uh, had posted a picture of maybe four or five fellows, men pushing into the back of a truck, maybe the first or one of the first computers, which had oh, like an obscenely low yes. uh, m- amount of memory. And it's like, I don't know, I'm going to say something wrong, but like 
two two RAM or two mag or something. Yeah. And I'm sure they thought that was massive. And I told my daughter that I said, I can't even tell you how big this thing was. But now what you hold in your hand playing your stupid game is more computing power than they have at Canaveral to launch the shuttles. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it, it's 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 yeah, it, I, I can't even think about those things, but it's cool. Indeed. All right. So before we get into the topic, which is your pretty newly released book, Constitution, I, I keep putting and Constitution Owner's Manual. Let's do just a quick reintroduction of what you what you do, who you are, and then we'll go into some talk about your book. All right. Well, who am I? That's a deep question. We could get very metaphysical with that, but we'll we'll uh, resist that That's temptation. Somebody else's show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm primarily known as the National Communication Director for the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, I'm a journalist by training and worked for a number of years in the world of news. Uh, got out of that because it doesn't pay very well and. It's dumb, so, you know. Uh, but I work for the 10th Amendment Center. also do various other and sundry things. I have uh, a podcast called the Godarchy Podcast, which involves kind of Christianity and voluntarism slash anarchism. And I also maintain the Shift Gold news page, so I do quite a bit of writing in the realm of economics and finance and investing. Uh, so I, I'm a man of many hats, but they all tend to revolve around writing because that's the that's the fork or I guess the pen I know. Um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much who I am in the in the nutshell version anyway. Well, fair enough. And, and the part that you didn't admit that I know is you are also a hockey player frustrated because you haven't found a team. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's. Yeah. So, yeah, I just moved to Florida. Um and actually, you know, people would think, oh, Florida, there's no hockey in Florida. There's actually a rink about 30, 45 minutes from me. And uh, they have a pretty well-developed adult league, but they don't need any goalies right now, which is really bizarre. It's the first place I've ever been where they don't need goalies. But it does seem strange. I know, it is. But it is what it is. So I'm just playing some pickup and, stay. I, you know, just got to stay on the ice at least. Well, tell them you're a pugilist and maybe they'll take you on. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but I'm not, so... Well, then don't misrepresent. No, right, don't do that. Right. So I did mention that you have a book, and it is, to me, a big deal for it gets to the why and the how of the Constitution, uh, which is, as you explained, being abused and usurped, which is a big word, and we're going to get to that part. So uh, the impeachment trial might be the best current episode public has about what is a demonstration of the shredding of the Constitution and Jefferson and Hamilton are rolling in their graves. And I've actually read a post like that and I kind of said, you realize that those two guys were kind of <laughs> polar opposites. Uh, well, I, they, they still wouldn't like it. Okay, well, whatever. So that suggests to me that nearly everyone gets the Constitution idea wrong and to me, this book is the bridge to crossing over that big divide. That's a really good way of putting it. I and I appreciate that. And it's you know it's kind of the culmination of basically ten years of research and study into the Constitution. Uh, you know, I I work for the Tenth Amendment Center, and of course, it's an organization that's focused on constitutional originalism and then activism. Uh, in in using state and local power to decentralize the system, which is what we were supposed to get with the Constitution, and didn't. And um, you know, as you can imagine, doing that work for ten years, you you read a lot. So I've read uh, extensively into the ratification debates and and uh, even into newspaper accounts from that time period and law review articles and all this nerdy stuff. And uh, along the way, I've written articles, and eventually I had enough that I could put together in a book. And that was really the purpose, to give a very, not simple, but relatively easy to read and concise overview of various clauses and principles in the Constitution, what they were intended to mean at the time they were ratified, and you know, along the way, demonstrate the fact that we have strayed massively from what was intended. And, 
what what we can do with that information, and then that's a, that's a whole other debate. But I think the first step is people need to understand we have this document. It's supposed to be the supreme law of the land. Most people have some reverence for it at some level, but they don't know what it means, and and they probably should. It's it's probably a reverence akin to sky cloth and magic songs. Yes, exactly. It, so it's true, and you know, you mentioned the impeachment hearings, and and I think that's a perfect example. I. Uh, saw uh, Adam Schiff on his uh, opening statements. He's the House Congress critter that's in charge of this uh, Kabuki theater. And I I watched it by accident because I was working out at the gym. And I'll be honest with you, I paid very little attention to the impeachment because I think it has almost zero relevance to my life or anybody's life for that matter. Uh, You know, even if they were to get rid of Donald Trump, even if they were to remove him from office, and I think the chance of that is next to zero. We end up with with Mike Pence. I I don't necessarily think that's an upgrade. Um, So, you know, who cares in, in that sense? But it was interesting to see Adam Schiff out there talking about the Constitution and actually referencing the Philadelphia Convention and uh, and, you know, trying to make this constitutional case because he, he must have at some level known that the public cares whether something is constitutional or not. Of course, he butchered it, which you would expect because he's a Harvard educated lawyer. And by and large, lawyers don't know anything about the Constitution. And when I say that, it shocks people because, you know, the, the, they're lawyers. They had constitutional law. Well, I never said they didn't know constitutional law. I said they didn't know anything about the Constitution. And there's a huge difference between those two things. And so we have all of these uh, educated lawyers and politicians and and pundits who basically they're either lying or they're just ignorant and or a, a mix of both when they start talking about the Constitution. And, you know, they act like it's important in some kind of ridiculous political theater like we're seeing with impeachment. But boy, when it comes to, you know, spying on everybody in America, we're not going to reference that document at all. So uh the, the political aspect is very frustrating to me. Uh, I don't really focus that on that a whole lot in the book. It's really more about uh, the history and the founding era and the legal structure that the Constitution was intended to give. But uh, the political aspect of it is is ridiculous and frustrating at the same time. It is both of those things. So you did mention that you write for the Tenth Amendment Center, and I think anybody who follows you and Michael Bolden uh, probably knows far more about the Constitution than people who don't. So I think many people would be surprised to find out that there are federal federal regulations about toilets <laughs> or light bulbs. Yes. And I don't know that they understand that the people who have made these laws have wildly overstepped their bounds. So we're going to get back to this, but just in the sort of a quick, (laughs) I'm doing this on purpose, a little preamble to what we're going to talk about. What is, how has this been, how is this allowed to happen? Well, I think in the first place, it's the nature of government. Government is always going to expand and grab for itself as much power as it possibly can. You can write all of the words on paper that you want to, uh, it's not going to matter unless there is some type of strong resistance through some other power source. In the original structure of the United States, it was supposed to be supplied by the states. Everybody thought that the states would be jealous of their power, that they would push back against federal overreach, that they would take action to stop federal overreach. And by and large, you did see this tension and this balance in the United States uh, up until the war between the states. But at that point, Lincoln's narrative of one nation uh, was completely, uh, basically imposed upon the entire United States. And today, most people don't even think of the states as anything other than little subsidiary counties, basically, of the federal government. And so the states have not pushed back. They have not done what Madison called their duty to interpose to stop the advance of unconstitutional federal overreach. And so we end up today, as you say, where the federal government determines how much water you can have in your toilet and how uh, what kind of light bulbs you can screw into your light fixtures. And people act like this is a good idea. That's what blows my mind. And, and especially people from the left, because the left are always talking about how bad monopolies are. You know, all these big corporations, these monopolies, they're awful. 
well, let's have a big monopoly federal government. It doesn't make any sense. And that's exactly what we have. The federal government today is no different than any other corporate monopoly. It has all of the awful consequences that you end up with in a monopoly. You know, horrible service, overpriced, uh, and, and overbearing. And that's what we have today. And the Constitution provides a means to decentralize power. And I, I, I say this every time anybody will let me talk. I think the biggest threat to freedom is centralized authority, monopoly government. All government is bad. All government is going to impose upon your rights. Uh, but when we have 50 different governments doing things, they compete against each other, just like 50 companies would do. Uh, we have a much better chance of some semblance of liberty in that system than we do with everything imposed on 320 million people from Washington, D.C. That's what we have today. And that's what we're trying to break apart at the 10th Amendment Center. And this book is part of that uh, process to let people know, hey, this was not what was intended. Uh, you know, Madison said that we would have a federal government with powers few and defined and that the states would have powers numerous and indefinite. And today we have the exact opposite of that. And people need to understand and know that uh, if, if you're going to have reverence for the Constitution, then respect what it actually says. And if you're going to trash it, then at least know what you're trashing. Fair point. Now, I don't mean to derail my own show, but one of the problems and the federal government for all of the evil is also exceptionally crafty. They've figured out that they can make those 50 states do their bidding by withholding cash. <laughs> do what we want or we won't give you the money. And states are run by people and, and that's Greed is a powerful motivator. So, you know, <clears throat> that's, I don't think that that's my show. That's another topic. Um, somebody smarter than I can probably take that on. But the current field of Democratic candidates features maybe entirely all progressives. And there is a thought in the progressive camp, perhaps not spoken of much in this cycle, that the Constitution is a living, breathing document. Yeah. Well, we know the absurdity of such a statement, but to him who was taught only that, well, suggesting otherwise is almost blasphemy or heresy. What do you say to someone who thinks that that's the case? Mere contradiction isn't an argument. So what's the selling point? for making the case without invoking Spooner. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't invoke Spooner anyway. Not not in this case. I, I like Spooner, but uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated with people who want to want to throw him in as a, as a constitutional answer for today. What I would say is, and, and what I do say, is that the Constitution at its core is a contract. It is based in contractual law. Uh, and con written constitutions always were. That's that's the nature of what they are. That's basically an agreement between the people who create the government and the government itself. And as with any contract, it can't be living and breathing and be of any use whatsoever. So the analogy that I often use is, would you allow yourself to have a living, breathing mortgage where the bank can come along and say, you know, I think it would be a good idea to raise your interest rates. And, you know, we maybe said it was going to be this back then, but, you know, circumstances have changed and we're now, you know, we have, we have modern things that we need to think about. So we're just going to raise your interest rate and your payments now $300 a month more. Nobody in their right mind would accept that. Nobody would have a living, breathing document or a living, breathing contract to uh, add an addition to their house. It's an absurdity. And Madison even talked about this idea that if you have a, a contract, if you have a constitution that is subject to changes in the whim, uh, at the whim of the, the people who are on either side of it, or even with the change of language over time, basically you have no government at all. There's no structure to it. There's no solid uh, foundation for government to operate. And you end up just basically having to operate on the whims of those in power. And voila, as we are today. Um, it doesn't work. And the thing that it's frustrating to me is that, you know, the Constitution's only living, breathing when it's allowing you to do something that you want your political party to do. Uh, Democrats will get very dogmatic about the Constitution, you know, when it comes to something like uh, 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 sometimes freedom of speech 
or you know the uh, you'll hear people get really dogmatic about uh, the uh, oh gosh I can't think of the the name of the court case Citizens United uh, you know where they basically said corporations have a right to speech and I'll get very dogmatic about the Constitution there it's not living and breathing there uh, but you know when it comes to guns then we have to be really living and breathing because they don't like guns and you know in, in all fairness the the right does the same thing. I mean, the right has been the primary driver of the drug war, which is wholly unconstitutional. And, and, you know, they'll squirm and twist and try to shoehorn that power into the federal government as well. Uh, so it's dangerous because any power that you give the other guy, the other guy is going to be able to use against you when they're in power. So it's really wise not to give anybody any power at all other than, than what was legitimately given to them. I think that that's a good point. And that's one of the things that I think is really important for even people who consider themselves well-informed on the Constitution. There's there's nuance here that I'm certain your high school didn't give you because mine didn't give it to me. And you make a point early in the book, in the introduction, as a matter of fact, the to point out the ratifiers. And so Michael will talk about them on his show. You'll write about them in your articles. But in general, these are things that are, the, the ratifiers and the ratifying conventions are almost never brought up. And to me, that's a key point to understanding where now, from whence, <laughs> I'm trying to be smart and I can't do it, uh, does the power come for enabling the general government. And I'm using right. your term because I know that you call it the general government. So let's start, well, let's start again or to add to the notion that the ratifiers of the several states, making the states the, the agents of authority, enabling this general government, and how that really is the beginning of understanding it's not it, that's the order of operations for the constitution yeah you know most people don't I, I was never taught how the ratification worked i mean basically you hear that they these guys met in philadelphia and they had a convention and they made a constitution and then it was ratified yeah <laughs> you know that's it. that's basically the story well how was it ratified well that's extremely important and the ratification process was actually uh I hate the term democratic, but in, in a sense, it was a democratic process. What happened was each state uh, convened a convention. They held public elections where delegates were elected to attend this convention. Ostensibly, the people voted for the delegates knowing where they stood uh, based on you know what, what they thought about uh, these constitutional issues. And then these people that were elected by the people were brought together with the power to ref, uh, either adopt or reject the Constitution. So it was, you know, the, these ratifying conventions, they weren't just a bunch of people who got together and said, oh, we're going to do this. This this was a, uh, a legitimate exercise of political power within each individual state. Uh, so most people don't know that. You know, I mean, that's, again, not something that you're taught. And it's significant because those conventions were every bit as much the representatives of the people as uh, Congress is the representative of the people or your legislature is the representatives of the people. So they were tasked with it. They had the authority to do it. And so what they understood to be ratifying as the, the way that they understood the document, the way that they viewed it when they voted yay or nay, is extremely significant. In that is where we find the actual meaning of the Constitution. Both James Madison and Thomas Jefferson specifically said that, uh, that this is where you find the meaning of the Constitution. So this is why I focus so much on the ratification debates, and in particular, the proponents of the Constitution, those who supported it, because the words that they said, the way they explain things, tells you what the people in those conventions thought that they were uh authorizing. So when you see that the uh, the ratifying or the delegates and the supporters of the Constitution were saying the general welfare was actually a limited thing, it was on that basis that the ratifiers were making a decision to ratify the Constitution. So that's where you find the understanding. What did the supporters of the Constitution say during the ratification debates that convinced people to 
accept this document to be the new constitution of the United States. And, you know, it wasn't a slam dunk. Uh, in, in fact, in many states, it was a very narrow vote. There was a lot of opposition to the constitution for a variety of reasons. And the ratification debates bring those reasons to the surface. Uh, the opponents of the constitution, known as the anti-federalists, brought up these various issues that uh, it would give too much power to the federal government, that the federal government would expand, that these various clauses meant something else. And the supporters of the Constitution said, no, 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 this is what you're going to get. And that's what it was ratified based on. So uh, that's where we find the actual meaning of the Constitution, not in the Philadelphia Convention, not in a bunch of Supreme Court opinions, not in what Nancy Pelosi or Barack Obama or uh, Donald Trump say, but in those ratification debates from the supporters of the Constitution. I think there's a feeling, and, and granted, it's been many years since I was in high school history or government class, but it seems almost that the ratification uh, conventions were rubber stamps. And of all 13 states, there was one guy who was opposed to it, and he's Patrick Henry, and he's just seen right. as a loon, because why would you not want to be for the Constitution? Because look at how magnificent it is. It does all these things for us. And so that's completely glossed over. Well, so a couple things. We know that the terms Federalist and Anti-Federalist have been twisted on their heads to mean less than is obvious. But And so this is what's impressive to me about all these, of all these men. The the foresight and, and that's that feels insufficient to explain my awe at their wisdom to see so far into the future but patrick henry is not excluded from that from that vision because he he saw and lots of them did but he gets the credit for sure. doing all of them to say this is not going to go as planned and this is going to be a big problem. Now, so without, let's go from this one more step. Because um, my daughter was asking me about, I, I fill her in because she's in seventh grade. And so uh, in her, uh, they call it social studies now. They're going over um, ancient Greece right now, which is fine. I've got content and I can get information to help her because it turns out that her teacher they, they have this, uh, they do a question of the day in this day in history, and they write the answers down on a piece of paper and hand it in. And never once is there a conversation about this. What a great teaching opportunity. Completely missed. So read your chapters. There's no discussion. There's no dialogue or anything. So she's not getting any education. So she's right. asking me, because she's listened to Michael all summer long. Mike, I want to ask you a question about the ratification but before we get to that, let's take a moment out for a word from my sponsor. What happened if a state voted no? So you know what? That's a really good question. So the question is, of the four possible states that could have flummoxed the whole thing, if they had said no, we do not want this, what would have happened? Would they have lived as free and independent states outside of the Union or would they have been drug into it against their will? Ooh, that's interesting speculation. I mean, theoretically, they would have uh, existed as independent countries. And in fact, North Carolina and Rhode Island did exist for some amount of time outside of the Union as independent countries. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that either. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that uh, it was almost a year, uh, maybe a little bit more, that Rhode Island was outside of the Union because they were reluctant to ratify. Uh, there was nothing that could that could legally force any state to join in with the the a confederation. That's why they had the ratification process. Once it got to the requisite number of of states, uh, I believe it was nine. Then at that point, the constitution was in force with those states that so ratified, and uh, the other states could join as as they went. And so Rhode Island Island was last. Uh, the first Congress met, there were no senators or representatives from, from Rhode Island because they were not part of the union. They were their own little country up until the point that they voted to join the union. Now, your question is interesting because I think ultimately uh, there was a lot of uh, pressure, primarily economic pressure as well as political on Rhode Island to go ahead and join the union. And 
uh, I think ultimately they probably would have been drug in. But uh, nevertheless, from a legal standpoint, uh, from a sovereignty standpoint, the, uh, the, the states that did not ratify would have been independent states for as long as they chose to be outside the union. Uh, whether they could have maintained that or not in practice, that's, a, that's an entirely different question. But you know, just because the union might have forced them in uh, doesn't make their sovereignty any less legitimate, you know, any more than uh, me hitting you in the head and making you give me money. <laughs> you know, if I if I beat you up and take your money, that doesn't make it uh, the transaction legitimate. So right. uh, you've got 19 chapters discussing various either clauses or ideas on the Constitution. Then the next 20, 24, next five are either the Bill of Rights in general and then four specific amendments, then you have a conclusion. So one of the things that I found very impressive was right out of the gate, chapter one, living, breathing constitution, which we've covered, chapter two, who is sovereign, everything you thought you knew as even me, and I've been doing this a little while, I was like, wow, there's... the the exposure to new information is really impressive. And in your chapter on sovereignty, you also have one on supremacy. There's a connection there when Congress usurps, I don't even know if I say that word right, its power. So talk about how those two things, sovereignty and supremacy, are connected, but how it is so far from today from what was intended. Yeah, I think that is really the linchpin of American political thought. And I was very intentional with the way I ordered the book. It was very intentional to start with those very fundamental things and show that there actually was an evolution of political thought from the British system into the American system that we have today. And you and I had a discussion offline about uh, the oddity of an unwritten constitution that doesn't make sense to Americans because we just assume a constitution is a written thing. But uh, the English constitution to this day is not written. There's no place that you can go and read the English constitution. It is a, a conglomeration of traditions, laws, judicial precedents, and more tradition. And constantly evolves and change. It sounds a lot like what progressives want the American system to be, doesn't it? Uh, but the Americans were like, you know, this doesn't work too well because it seems like a moving target and things that were once considered to be rights are being eroded away by this, uh, by this British system. So we're going to write down the powers of government so that there's no question, so that we can go back and look and that government is constrained by these provisions. This is what it can do. It can't do anything else. And then maybe the government won't expand and trample on our rights. Now, as we have seen, that didn't work out so well in practice over the long term, but it was certainly a good idea. Uh, and it was certainly an improvement over the English system. So it's important to understand that the English system was different. And there's a reason that the Americans adopted this written constitutional system. And this began long before the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. We saw this in state constitutions, uh, which morphed into the Articles of Confederation and then finally took final form in the Constitution of the United States. But the whole evolution of constitutional thinking is, is fascinating and important. And I would reference pe uh, folks to um, a book by, you know, of course, my mind just went blank. blank. Uh, Wood is his last name and not Thomas Woods, but uh, Gordon, Gordon Wood. He wrote a book called the um, shouldn't ever try to do these things off the top of your head. Um, he used a, he wrote a book that has a title that I use quite extensively in those chapters as a as a reference. Uh, basically, did he goes through this evolution of American thought? He's a, a very well known and respected historian, so that's important. So sovereignty that's the question that we're coming to. What is sovereignty? Sovereignty is basically where's the power, right? Uh, Ultimately, I believe that sovereignty, when you boil it all down, belongs with the individual. Uh, we are self-owners. We own ourselves. That means we have right to control our own actions. People aren't allowed to enslave us. Uh, we could get into the ramifications of that, and it would take us a whole down a whole nother bunny trail. But from a political standpoint, in political science, 
when we talk about sovereignty, we usually are talking about the group of people that have ultimate power in the system. The Constitution alludes to this. In the very beginning of the Constitution, it says, we the people. Uh, so it immediately tells us something that's, that's different from the English system. It's not we the government that has the power. It's we the people that have the power. So sovereignty lies with the people. Uh, that was a huge departure from ancient systems where sovereignty was generally in the king. Uh, in the English system, it was actually in parliament with the king having kind of the being the figurehead or the, the funnel through which that power flowed. Uh, but in the American system, it was the people. The people established the government. The people had the right to change the government. The people had the right to abolish the government, uh, as we read in the Declaration of Independence. So sovereignty is in the people, but it's not just the people in mass. And there's a whole chapter on this in the book, and I won't dig too deep into it because it's a little bit complicated. And I want you to buy the book, let me be honest. Uh, but ultimately, in the American system, the sovereignty lies in the people of the states. We talk about states' rights. That's really a shorthand way of saying the people of the states. Each state is a political society. It's independent. The people of that state exercise uh, their sovereign will uh, when it comes to all things political. So we talked about the ratification of the Constitution. Uh, each state... That political society got representatives from that political society together and decided whether they, as an independent political society, wanted to join this union. Um, so Madison does a really fantastic job in the Virginia Port Report of 1800 of explaining what we mean by the people. And uh, I actually quote extensively from a passage that he wrote on that in the book that lays it out relatively clearly, even with the uh, 18th century, 19th century language. Uh, that you'll find in there. But so this is significant. Where is the sovereignty? The sovereignty is in the people of the states, or in short, the states. The states are the sovereign blocks of the union, not the nation, not this one big glob. And so that's what's really, I think, where most people go off the tracks when it comes to understanding the American political system, because we've been indoctrinated to believe that America is one giant nation, you know, one nation under God. We say that every single day growing up in school, the Pledge of Allegiance, which is a, a horrible short form bastardization of the American political system. It's not one nation and it's not indivisible. It's a union of sovereign political societies. And uh, so when we talk about supremacy, uh, most people think that supremacy, the supremacy clause means that the federal government gets to do whatever it wants, and they ignore the most important words in the supremacy clause in the Constitution, which is in pursuance thereof. Uh, all laws that are in pursuance of the Constitution are the supreme law of the land. Anything that is not in pursuance of the Constitution is not the supreme law of the land, and uh that's where we go way off the rails because most people read that to be, well, Congress can pass whatever they want. And that's the supreme law of the land. No. Uh, so taking it a step farther, we have this idea that the Constitution is uh, a creator of a limited government, that it can only do the enumerated powers. When I say enumerated, I mean the powers that are listed. Who decides? Well, that's where sovereignty comes to play. Uh, it's not the Supreme Court. It's not the president. It's not Congress. It is the people of the states. In the last resort, as Madison put it, the people of the states get to decide what the powers of the federal government are, uh, whether they're going to abide by the things that the federal government tells them to do, and ultimately whether they want to stay in the union. And uh, I, I believe that secession was absolutely fundamentally part of the American political system. They talked about it. Uh, in the early years, the northern states talked about, New England states talked about seceding uh, because they were a little wary about this new union. Uh, the only reason that we have one nation now is because Lincoln managed to win a war, which I think is a horrible way to establish sovereignty because basically you're saying if I can kill enough people and uh, force your hand hard enough, then you will be part of, of uh, this big one nation. Well, that's a horrible, uh, immoral, if I may use that word, you may. way to structure a governmental system. Uh, so yeah, sovereignty is extremely important. And those first three or four chapters in the book kind of lay it out uh, in a logical, chronological way that I think, I hope people can wrap their heads around and, and then look at the system as it is today and say, hey, wait a minute, that's not what we got. <laughs> no, it's not what we got. But and, and to add to your hope, at least for this reader, 
the the order of chapters does make sense because you you're entering into you're entering into um, this is this is big this is big idea stuff and to grasp big ideas you have to take small steps one at a time and and you succeed at that because getting into the book is like okay it gets deep fast uh chapter on uh, nullification is a long chapter and it nullifications like grabbing wet sand it's not just it's not concrete it doesn't yeah. always make sense and part uh so part of the issue i think yes goes back to the unification which <laughs> i am just killing english language today folks of <laughs> of the states and this whole mindset that now we're one where now between the usurpation the taking of power by the elected air quotes leaders but i think that there's at the same time the general population relinquishing their own power. And I'm not going to say they're relinquishing yeah. their sovereignty because I don't think I don't think you can give that away. But you can certainly uh, fail to participate in the functioning of the government that the states have created. And I think that that's what's going on. And so, as Congress takes more power, the public seems to be willing to give it away. And absolutely. And I think it's not really I think I think it's even I think Congress has lost a lot of its power and Congress has given its own power away. And now effectively, I think what most people want is a king. I uh, I saw an article today uh, that Bernie Sanders has said that, you know, on day one of his of his his administration, he's going to make marijuana legal in all 50 states uh, by executive order. <laughs> uh, excuse me. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am I am as happy as I would be as happy as anyone to see the unconstitutional uh, marijuana prohibition at the federal level end. But the president doesn't have the power to make marijuana legal in every single state in the United States. That's a state issue. It's an issue for each state to decide. So, you know, you're out in Oregon. Uh, marijuana is already legal in that state. Uh I'm in Florida. Medical marijuana is legal here in Kentucky, where I came from. No marijuana is legal. It's different, but that's as it should be. It's up to those political societies to determine what they want to do with weed. It's not up to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is not king. But there are a lot of people, libertarians included, who will go, well, that's a good idea. Well, no, it's not a good idea because if he can unilaterally just say, well, marijuana is now legal in all 50 states, then he can also say that free speech is illegal in all 50 states. I mean, if he's king, he can say whatever he wants. Or guns are that's illegal in all we, 50 states. Or, right. or you have to house your soldiers. I mean, yeah, the, the slippery slope becomes very slippery and very steep. Yes, and that's my biggest frustration in the political sphere is that there are so many people that will, will run to a candidate – that offers them power to do the thing that they want done. And they'll forget that that same power is going to be used to do awful things as well. And we're better off not letting the government do any damn thing. And, uh, you know, and like you said, it really, uh, there, there is some sense that we as individuals have kind of just kind of given up, you know, we want the government to give us stuff, give us money and protect us and blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, uh, you know, it's wrapping shackles around our feet and our hands. Not a good plan, not something that I want to do. And the Constitution, you know, it's interesting because when you when you look at the kind of the principles that the founding generation had their head wrapped around because they just went through a war to free themselves from what they considered a tyrannical government. You know, ironically, it's not nearly as tyrannical as the government we ended up with today, objectively speaking. But in, in the time, they felt like it was a, a, a tyrannical, overbearing government. So they understood that there needed to be limits. And one of the reasons they talked about you know, having a Bill of Rights and they talked about enumerating powers and listing out the things that the government could do was because they recognized that in, uh, you know, in a crisis or when things are going bad, people will demand uh, the government to do something about it. They wanted to have these fences already in place so that when the crisis did come and somebody said, well, we need to ban free speech, that there would be a fence there that it would run up against and say, ah, sorry, we can't do that. Um, so it was really, you know, the intention behind the Constitution was was amazingly insightful. The execution of the Constitution 
well, it basically has been executed. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, there's, uh, that's a, a fun choice of words. Well, I think, you know, the, the free speech thing, I think Lizzie came out pretty much saying that she wants to end that because, I, what'd she say? She wants to make... I don't remember. Yeah, but I... I yeah. Criminal to say, to, to post meanie pants things on Facebook. Can't say bad things about me on Facebook. I'm going to put you in jail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. Right. And, you know, this has been going on since the, the late 1700s. I mean, we had, you know, we had the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798, which is where the whole nullification thing, uh, the, that whole principle rose out of the Alien and Sedition Acts. And the Sedition Acts was effectively uh, a law that criminalized speech that was critical of the government. And they actually threw people in jail for criticizing John Adams. It's kind of funny. And I actually have some of the quotes in, in the book or maybe in my first book. Uh, I also, you know, I, I do have a second book. It's called uh, Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty, which is exclusively about nullification. I lay out the uh, philosophical, moral, and historical case for nullification. almost wish I had written constitution owner's manual first uh because really the first book flows out of the out of the second but um you know nullification is this huge big issue like you say and i cover it in that second book so i kind of wanted to to make that point is but um is that up on amazon it is on amazon okay, well, and also available through my I'll, through my store i'll put links to those on today's show notes page culinary libertarian.com slash 73 and we're going to get to your websites in, in a minute but go ahead and finish sure. your nullification thought um i don't know okay <laughs> well <laughs> my thought derailed but yeah uh, basically just saying that um you know we've I don't remember. Never mind. Well, that's okay. So we were we were notification is important. Let's do it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> absolutely. So we were talking a little bit about uh, the amendments by about free speech, but uh, let's talk a little bit more about that because you do mention a few of them. But let's just if either specifically or in general, uh, and one of the you know taxation is theft is a popular slogan among libertarians. Uh, but the detractors would say, but, but, but it's in the Constitution as an income tax. So the amendment process allows for amending the Constitution, which is what you're supposed to do. But now that it is an amendment, does that make taxation legal or is, I mean, what's going on? Is it still legal? Is it illegal? What's happening? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And that gets into the whole dichotomy between uh the philosophical, moral, ethical framework of government and is and what government should be, and the constitutional framework of what government is, and then I guess we could take it even a further step in in the what what the the system should be because the, what it should be has diverged from the constitution. I would argue that the constitution itself diverges from uh, a philosophical, moral, ethical standpoint, and and believe it or not. Uh, and I think you probably know this, but others might not. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with Spooner when he talks about the illegitimacy of constitutions in general in terms of a philosophical moral framework. Um, I believe taxation is theft no matter what the Constitution or the law may say. Now, that said, within the American constitutional system, income taxes is legal. Now, is it moral? Is it ethical? That's a completely different question. So we have the world in which we would wish it to be as a uh, voluntarist. And when I say voluntarist, it's basically somebody that believes all interactions between human beings should be consensual and voluntary. Uh, I reject all of these government structures from a philosophical, moral standpoint. But we also live in a real world. And as Murray Rothbard uh, you know, one of the premier libertarian thinkers said, uh, libertarians have to do more than parrot ultimate principles. That's a, a paraphrase of what he said. But uh, I think it's very true. We have a real world with a real government in it, and we have to figure out some way to deal with that and create as much space for liberty as we possibly can. From that standpoint and from a pragmatic standpoint, I do believe the constitutional system as it was intended would afford us much more liberty than the bastardized system that we're living under today. And that's why I do the work I do at the 10th Amendment Center. That's why I talk about and teach the Constitution, because I think it is a step forward uh, 
in in terms of liberty because it does create a decentralized system. It does create a structure in which we can use nullification in order to block overreaching power from the central authority, where we can devolve power down to the uh, to the state level, ultimately the local level, and then hopefully you know someday to the individual level. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm coming from from a big overall picture. Now, you don't have to believe any of my you know core philosophical beliefs to read this book. Uh, you can be the biggest statist in the world. Uh, the Constitution is what it is. It is a legal document. It has legal meaning. It has a uh, legal structure. That's what this uh, book gets to and teaches. Well said. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in my Facebook fights is making a qualification. And I, and I quite honestly, I stole it from Bolden, is when, especially when someone's bringing up, well, this is a constitutional. So my retort would be something about the Constitution as ratified to make the distinction that what you're talking about and what was made isn't the same thing. And now, getting someone to actually do something like think in a Facebook fight, well, that's pretty <laughs> silly. You may as well, you know, I don't know. There's lots of other silly things that are just as just as dumb and just as unlikely. But at some point, if possibly somebody reads it, then maybe there's a point to be made. But other than that, sure. I don't think there's a lot of use in um, Twitter fights. or They're, they're harder because you have to have shorter characters or a shorter quantity. But... One of the things I wanted to just add and compliment you on was your use of metaphor to make a point and, and that you've done this quite well. Uh, and the two particular examples were the hockey ref not yeah. being able to make a ruling on a football field because mm -hmm. how silly is that? Uh, and then I had another one and I can't remember what it was, but there's there, you, you have a, a gift for taking and this is this is heady stuff this is a big bite you have a gift for making the complicated big idea something that anybody can understand and that's a real big task and so to your credit you've done a good job with that i appreciate that i think a lot of that has to do with having a journalism background um you know that's first and foremost above anything else i'm a writer and Journalism journalists get a lot of uh, bad rep, bad press, I guess, uh, and for a good reason because there's a lot of uh, bias and whatnot. But there are things that you learn in journalism school that, if you apply them, are very, very useful for uh, much broader things. One of the things that you learn to do in journalism school is is dig out documents and uh, look at various angles of things, and that really helped me as I was studying the ratification era studying the constitution, learning the legal structure. You learn how to do that. You learn how to research. And I think that's been very helpful to me. And then just, you know, I, I've been fortunate through the years of having some really, really good uh, writing teachers. Uh, in fact, um, uh, Monique Fields was one of my journalism professors. She did a fantastic job of, of helping me be a better writer and to communicate things clearly and in a way people can understand. And Dr. Tony Sylvia, who is the, uh, the head of the journalism department at USF South uh, University of South Florida, St. Pete, when I was at school there, uh, he, another person that just a really good job of helping me be a better writer. In fact, his wife actually edited this manuscript. Nice. Cool. Um, but so, yeah, I think that that, you know, I kind of bring something a little bit different to the table than somebody who is, is, has a background in law or, um, you know, history. Now, not having that, that credential from law and history, some people will say, well, what does he know? You know, he's just some dude, which, you know, I guess is fair, whatever. But, um, you know, I always say people should look at an argument from, uh, not from the standpoint of who made the argument, but is this a valid argument? Is this a good argument? And, you know, regardless well, of the credentials that, that can lead into that can lead into a whole conversation about the inadequacies of public education and the <laughs> yeah. failures of teaching logic and argumentation. But that's at least another episode and maybe even somebody else's show. Um, yes. So one of the things I think is a good addition to your book is is the conclusion also includes the full text of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the amendments. And there's something that you included 
in the chapter on the preambles was the preamble to the Bill of Rights, which in my handy-dandy pocket copy from an unnamed source did not, and they should have known better, they did not include the preamble to the Bill of Rights. And so until yesterday, I didn't know there was such a thing. Uh, in addition to all of that, you also include the Virginia... The, the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. So I think those are important. Do you want to just say a few words about why they're there and what readers can glean from those documents? Yeah, absolutely. First off, the uh, the preamble to the Bill of Rights. I didn't know it existed until ten years ago. <laughs> so you're you're not alone. I mean, and that's. That's why I put it there, because nobody knows it's there. And it tells us, much like the preamble to the Constitution, it tells us a little bit about what the intent of the Bill of Rights was. And, of course, that's, that's going to be the most controversial chapters in the book, but we'll let people read it and, and, and chew on that in their own heads. That's a whole episode in and of itself. But, yeah, I thought it was important to include that because it was a part of the document. If you go look at the actual copy of the Bill of Rights, that preamble is attached to it. And they did that on purpose because they wanted people to understand what they were doing, that it was uh, intended to be a document that put limits on the government that was being created by the Constitution, the federal government. Uh, I included the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions of 1798 because I think together they give the best, most concise easy to digest, understandable framework of the intention or the intended American system that exists anywhere in the world. And again, I didn't know these documents existed until about 10 years ago. And uh, the first time that I read them, I was floored. It's like, how did I not know this? I mean, this is like, these are written by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, two of the you know premier founding fathers. I'd never heard of these documents. And when I read them, I was like, wow. Because it just lays out this this compact theory, as they call it, which I think is a compact fact. Uh, it explains this whole issue of sovereignty, how the Constitution was uh, was adopted, and who decides where the power actually lies. And uh, particularly the Kentucky resolutions, which were written by Thomas Jefferson, I think they're just amazing pieces of American history that everybody should be required to read. Uh, not that I'm into requiring people to do things, but if you're going to require people to go to school and learn crap, well, then learn require something. them to require them to at least read these documents. So uh, at least having them in the back of the book, it gives them, uh, you know, people have easy access to them and they can, they can refer to them and read because there's a lot to digest there. And again, it's, you know, they wrote differently in, in the uh, 1700s and they do today. So the language can be a little bit of a, a little bit formidable, but um, I, I hope everybody, you know, I would be happy if people would just read those two documents because it will radically change the way you look at the American political system. In fact, if you don't have any money or you just don't feel like buying a book, Google Kentucky and Virginia resolutions of 1798 and read them. Um, yeah, even if you don't buy the book, I encourage you to do that because, it, you know, I, I heard Tom Woods say before, you know, we don't want to go through life being being ignorant barbarians. Well, this is an opportunity to educate yourself uh, on on the American political system. So I encourage people to do that. Well, I yes. And by the way, folks, the book is under 10 bucks on Kindle and you can get it for a song. One of the things that is. And, and we talked about technology. One of the things that's fabulous in 2019 and 2020 is lifelong learning is spectacularly yes. simple. And so you brought up Tom Woods, and I'm going to make a pitch uh, for his Liberty Classroom program. I have the master level and the amount of content there. And so you have you know, your introduction or uh, introduction was written by Brian McClanahan, yes. who is a very good historian who has his own podcast, who has mm -hmm. classes on the uh, Liberty Classroom. Uh, you also, I think you consulted uh, Kevin Goodsman, who is also a spectacular historian, yes. uh, prolific author of, of the Founding Fathers, and also has content on Liberty Classroom. So there's there's a lot of ways for listeners and readers to, at their own pace, backfill the stuff. And so what, there isn't a race. It's not a hurry. But doing 
doing the work of going and reading Mike's book or Mike's books um, and, and reading his articles at the Tenth Amendment Center, that begins the understanding of, wow, there's more to this than the Nancy is telling me or Chucky or, you know, pick any of them. They're not really, they have no interest in telling you the truth. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't. They have no incentive to reveal what is actually going on. The only incentive yeah. is to get the job again. And some of them have been there for 40 years. What the hell are you people thinking? Right. So, you know, and here's the cool thing too. You know, I quote heavily from the founders, um, letters, newspaper articles, uh, St. George Tucker, who wrote the first systematic commentary on the U.S. Constitution, I quote heavily from him. You'll find a lot of quotes in this book uh, from the sources. So you don't really have Mike Meharry trying to tell you something. You can actually read what these people say. But also, I tried to make sure that everything is is footnoted and or referenced. So you can actually go look these things up. And when I reference these letters between Thomas Jefferson and James Madison or, or you know these various documents, you can actually go online and I have the links in the in the uh, in the notes. You can go online and read them yourselves. Read the entire document. Read the Virginia Report of 1800. Uh, you know, read the letter of Helvidicus where uh, uh, James Madison lays out war powers. You can go and find all of these things online and read the original documents and see for yourself and and evaluate them for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it or um, anybody's word for it. And that's the the amazing thing about the internet. You know, I the research that I did in this book thirty years ago, it would have taken me eons to pull all of this information together. I would have had to go to various libraries and pull these documents. All of this is online now. And, and so you can see and learn it for yourself. And I encourage you to do that. Don't take Mike Meharry's word for it or, uh, you know, anybody's, like I said, go to those sources and, and it's a lifelong process. And if you're, you know, if you're an interested, uh, curious person, uh, you can, you know, be a constitutional expert and know more than most lawyers in about, uh, you know, six months. It won't study. take long. And that's that's kind of a deliberate stab at lawyers, but it won't take long to just learn more than most anybody about the kind, especially your keyboard warriors who who whose allegiance flies with the wind and were constitutionalists as long as my favorite guy is in the office. Absolutely. So, I, I I knock on lawyers a lot in the book, actually. Oh, that's well, right. not a lot, but, but it's but it is kind of you know that it's. Uh, the introduction, I talk about this this idea that the Tenth Amendment is always the wrong answer. And, and that's something that they tell you when you're studying the bar exam, that if you see in a, some, a question on the bar exam and if it references the Tenth Amendment if, you know, in the multiple choice and you see Tenth Amendment as an answer, it's always wrong. You can just mark that one off. <laughs> well, Thomas Jefferson said, you know, the Tenth Amendment is the cornerstone and the foundation of the Constitution. And the lawyers are telling us that that's always the wrong answer. So something's wrong with the legal profession when, when you see that. So, yeah, never trust a lawyer when it comes to the Constitution. Read my book instead. You're in good company. Shakespeare also beat up on the yes. lawyers, and that's been 400 years. So, All right. Well, give us some websites. So how can people find your books? How can people keep up with you and, and follow what Mike Meharry is doing? All right. The best place to find information about the book and all of the links to the various places you can get it. So the Kindle version, the, the paperback version on Amazon, or you can go through my store for a few bucks more and I'll sign a copy for you. Uh, all of that can be found at constitutionownersmanual.com. Very clever, very easy to remember. So if you go to that link, it'll take you to the page with uh, the kind of the overview of the book. And like I said, links to all of the buying opportunities that are out there. Okay. Uh, that will also actually take you to my website, michaelmeharry.com. Uh, if you use that constitutionalownersmanual.com, it just redirects you to my website. So you'll find other things on that website, including uh, my podcast, Thoughts from Meharry Head, which is focusing on constitutional issues and political decentralization. Articles that I've written, uh, I think the top of the blog right now is the episode with Tom Woods that I did on this book. Um, so you can go there, check out all things Michael Meharry there. Uh, also, I encourage everybody to visit 10thAmendmentCenter.com. In fact, if you're only going to go one place, go there uh, because that's where we're doing the work uh, and, and actually trying to bring back some semblance of this decentralized system that the founding generation intended for us to have. You can learn more about nullification, not only in 
theory, but also in practice. And you can see how we're using uh, nullification in state and local power to undermine unconstitutional federal overreach. So 10th Amendment Center.com. Uh, that would be my first stop. Then you can check out constitutionownersmanual.com and uh, learn about the book. And uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at mmeharry, 10th. 10th is just the 10th. And uh, I'll confess up front, I'm not a very good Twitterer, but <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm there and I do tweet stuff, but I'm no, I'm no you know, Michael Malice or anything like that. Um, and then if, like I, I mentioned, the uh, the kind of the political philosophy, if you're interested in more about that or voluntarism, and you really want to get into the, uh, the, I guess the weeds, uh, in terms of this idea of voluntarism and self-ownership, uh, I have a website called godarchy.org, G-O-D-A-R-C-H-Y.org, where I talk about the intersection of Christianity and the state. Uh, it's very much a Christian anarchist perspective. And, um, you know, not for everybody, but if that's if, if you're a Christian and you're interested in uh, these types of things, I think you'll find some interesting content over there as well. So well, I think that pretty much covers where I am. Well, I will put the Constitution, OwnersManual.com, 10th Amendment Center, your Twitter, just in case, and Godarchy <laughs> on the show notes page. And then it looks like you will be completely unavoidable <laughs> or completely findable. Yeah, I'm there. I'm on Facebook too. I have a, a Facebook page for Michael Meharry. Or you can friend me on Facebook. I will take most friend requests unless you like seem really, really crazy. That bar is really, really low for really, really. Basically, if you're not a flat earther, I'll probably accept your friend, friend request. <laughs> now, how long you stay is another matter. Right. No, you know, I unless you're a flat earther i i don't have much patience for the flat earthers but other than that it's a pretty pretty open page yeah it is all right well thank you very much for your time this at well still morning for me midday for me definitely afternoon for you and uh how's the weather there it is uh probably upper 60s and about as sunny as it could ever be well, we have the sun, which is nice, but we don't have the 60s. I don't even know what it is. It was 19 when I went outside this morning. Oh, <laughs> no, thank you. That's what I moved to moved to Florida to get away from. Yeah, well, I've been there. So, well, have a fabulous afternoon, and I will talk to you, and I'll be seeing you online a lot. And thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this podcast. I really appreciate the work that you're doing out there. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Good interview. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. All right. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's going to do it. Mike mentioned he has another book on Amazon. Mike has a total of four books on Amazon, and I'll link to them all on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 73. I mentioned I use Liberty Classroom to help my daughter with her social studies. The course I'm using is Western Civilization to 1500, and that includes, of course, Ancient Greece. I bought the Master Level subscription, and that came with the bonus of the government courses from Tom Wood's Ron Paul curriculum. Included in that is also Tom's content on Ancient Greece, and between the two, she's getting far more than anyone else in her class on Ancient Greece. You can check out all the Liberty Classroom courses with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback. If you get the master level as I did, you get all the Liberty Classroom content there is, the Ron Paul bonus courses, and access to all the courses yet to be made for Liberty Classroom. That's a lot of courses, 30 minutes each for the lifelong learner. Check out culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback to learn more and to sign up. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.